What's next? This is a question we're all having to ask and answer more frequently. I'm Jenny Blake, your host of the Pivot Podcast and author of Pivot, The Only Move That Matters is Your Next One. For show notes from this episode, visit pivotmethod.com slash podcast. If change is the only constant, then let's get better at it. Here we go. Hello, everybody. I'm thrilled to be here today with my guest, Maury Taharipur. She is an award-winning educator and globally recognized executive with over 15 years of experience leading initiatives at the intersection of sports, social change, and negotiations in public and private sectors. She serves on the faculty of the Legal Studies and Business Ethics Department at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania, teaching negotiation and dispute resolution for both undergrad and graduate levels. Today, we're talking about her new book, Bring Yourself, How to Harness the Power of Connection to Negotiate Fearlessly. Maury, welcome to the show. Jenny, thank you for having me. Happy to be here. You are someone whose book has come out in March in the midst of not just Corona madness, but the the immense uncertainty throughout the month of, Mar- month of March. I know you were booked at South by Southwest and you probably had so many events surrounding the launch of your book. I'm just curious to know what it's been like for you navigating that in this last month. At first, I have to say it was a little surreal. I was like, what is happening? And then I felt a little sorry for myself. Because I was like, really, after all this time of, you know, it's like giving birth to a baby kind of thing. So uh, I happened to just launch it right in the midst of the worst week. Um, and worst month ever. But I did stay in that space for that long, to be honest, because um, I really started sort of thinking about my students that I've had and um, the craziness of the world. And I sort of started balancing this notion of being grateful for having had all the experiences and continuing to have the relationships that I have with my students and, and people that I've taught and and the fact that I could still communicate with them and, you know, all was not lost and they would become, you know, people I could reach out to through social media and all the rest of it and ask for help. But the other part of it was also we couldn't help. That was at the time when before I stopped watching the news, I was watching the news constantly. And it was hard to think that my problems were even remotely significant. I started just thinking about all that was going on out there. And I thought, okay, so we'll cre- treat this as rehearsal. I'll relaunch it. Like there's, who said this only has to happen now? And and I just refused to give in to that feeling of like gloom because it was kind of just eating me up. And I was like, no, enough. I woke up one morning, I was like, done. I'm so done. Um, this is going to be okay. And thankfully, um, I sort of pushed myself out of that mindset. Well, it's so understandable to to process all that even before we hit record we were talking about how it's a day-by-day thing and Mm -hmm. you mentioned the collective grief of everybody who's grieving the way things were no matter what scale of change they've confronted and for you a book is such a long-term project that at the last minute you know right as it's coming out to have to adjust so much of what you thought that launch might look like is is a challenge And it's also interesting that the topic of your book is about human connection, empathy, and negotiation and saying that negotiation is something we do all the time. And interestingly enough, 
everybody was thrown into the deep end of negotiation in this last month, having to renegotiate contracts, jobs, employment, family space, how they Mm -hmm. live in their own home. I mean, it's kind of wild to think about. It's almost like the volume on negotiation got turned up to a 10, although with varying levels of skill, I would imagine. Yeah. And it's funny because I've always been one who thinks we negotiate all day, every day. So that's sort of the premise of the book too, is that we're actually better negotiators than we think we are because it's something we do all the time. So it doesn't have to be sort of some transaction. Um, but the interesting thing is now we really see that it's something that we do all the time to your point, whether it's family, whether it's, um, you know, your, your job, your employment, you're going after unemployment, your landlords, you know, like all of this, like every aspect of our life needs some kind of intervention from a negotiations perspective. And so, yeah, if anything, we're using those skills far more today in a very tangible way than, than we were even sort of in the headspace of realizing. Um, but I think we also negotiate more with ourselves. I mean, one of my students always ask me like, Professor Tanner, what's, what's the hardest negotiations you've ever done? And I always, you know, I know that they probably expect some like sexy answer of like, you know, Middle East peace crisis or something. And I'm like, you know, the ones I've had with myself because they've been the most sort of emotional, emotionally taxing or, um, ones that were really complex. Um, and I feel like we're even doing that more now because half the time, like I said, over my book, I had to really sort of negotiate my way out of the, the helplessness or the hopelessness that I was feeling and, and give myself sort of this other story. But it is, it's everywhere all the time. And we are certainly getting a lot of practice. Um, maybe, maybe a lot of failed attempts as well, especially with in family um, situations. But, you know, it's just over and over, we just have to persist because this is sort of, you know, at least for now, the new normal. You talk about the inner doubter. And you're right, I didn't think of it that way that we're every day, especially now with so much change and uncertainty. I'm doing it too. I woke up today, feeling sad and angry again. Mm-hmm. And and then I had the voice that said, Come on, Jenny, you know better, just you got this. And then the other voice was like, F you. Right. <laughs> you know, no, I'm pissed off. Everything is changing and, and hard. And I'm sick of it being hard every day and getting harder and losing right. yet another contract. And then another one after that. And I similar to you, like, I hit a breaking point, And then at other times, I hit a breakthrough point. Right. And it's just, it's an evolving process, no matter how much I can know intellectually, spiritually, it doesn't matter. There is another yeah. part in me that's not even the inner doubter, but but certainly the inner doubter, the volume's up on that too, because there's the inner doubt of, is this going to be okay? When are things going to come back online? How long will I, we need to stretch every last right. dollar? And, and by the way, for listeners, I had so many ahas reading Maury's book. Like I, <laughs> there are so many dog ears. I had so many aha moments. And I want to come back to something you said, which is, one of the biggest negotiations is with, with ourselves. You say in the book, you can't be the person who diminishes your value. Others will do that too often for you. Mm-hmm. And that sometimes we can be our own worst enemy because the stories we tell. That's something I'd love to touch on, which is a lot of people listening probably maybe even saw the title and said, negotiation, right. I don't even want to listen. Right. Or I'm not good at that. Or I don't like conflict. 
And I, Jenny, can say I am a recovering people pleaser. And I find negotiations very stressful and very challenging. Right. So how can we bolster people's confidence during this time, especially when they're not negotiating from what feels like a position of strength? You know, I would imagine so many people right now are negotiating from a place of survival. Right. There's so much. It's like, where do I, where do I begin? But uh, let's talk about the whole premise of not really liking negotiation or sort of running away from it. And I think, again, you know, I talk a lot in the book about sort of the scars we have and, you know, the bad experiences you've had or feeling like you were taken advantage of in some point. And so those leave these sort of indelible memories in our mind. And yet, you know, I start every class by reminding students about how literally every day, whether it's bringing the dog in when it's raining outside and he's like, I'm not really ready. Like that's the, that's the negotiations with your kids, with your parents. So, so much more of our time is involved in those types of negotiations that we're, you know, we're probably pretty good at. And yet the bad memories sort of stick out in my mind, which quickly makes people think I'm not good at this, or I don't really enjoy it. But in truth, it's just conversations. And above everything else, it's, it's really sort of a, a mutual um, sort of commitment to problem solving, if you will. And I think that where we are today, um, it's obviously, you know, right out of the gate, you sort of have to acknowledge the fact, uncharted territory, very difficult. Um, but we're all sort of, you know, you and I talked about this sort of collective pain that we're experiencing. I think that, you know, at least from what I've heard from some people, that even if they call a landlord or a bank, even if the the issue isn't immediately resolved, there seems to be a lot more room for sort of this runway of problem solving, I, I think, because we're all in it. So for um, a bank to be like, oh, no, you have to pay on time. It's kind of silly because you know, it's not possible. The The world is going through this and governments are responding. Companies are closing down. Like you're, you're almost powerless. And this is not something that you brought on yourself voluntarily. So from bad decision-making per se. So I think we're all sort of, this is, if anything, the right time or the perfect time um, for these conversations, because instead of being committed to the and I hate this word, by the way, but like winning the negotiation, you know, just you yourself coming out in a more powerful place. There's sort of this collective um, commitment to problem solving because we just have to get out of this together. Otherwise, if somebody goes bankrupt, they can't pay you back in six months. If somebody becomes homeless, you know, they're, they're foreclosed on their house, you know, what are you going to do? Then that causes a whole other string of problems. So I do think this is sort of the perfect storm. Um, I think there's a lot of opportunity in it. And uh, I think that we have to be more innovative in the way we think about it. We have to sort of step back and think what's really important right now. Um, and maybe it's not the perfect solution, but that is this, just let's kind of work through this and maybe we keep coming back. This is one of those odd times where you may come back to that same negotiation over and over again because everything's changing week by week, week sometimes day by day. So you could say things like, let's do this for now, um, but let's leave room to revisit this in two months. 
And we don't usually have those kinds of, um, so that the flexibility in those conversations that I think the situation beckons for now. It's so beautifully said, the collective commitment to problem solving. And I love, I was cheering when I read that line in your book of why you hate the word winning, because I am such a big stickler for language as well. And even now, I I was reading an interesting think piece around calling this a war, and we're Mm -hmm. fighting and it's like making even this virus, this language of war fighting enemy. um, I don't know, there's something that gets I don't like about it. I know that's weird to say, of course, I want the virus gone. But especially in terms of negotiation, can you explain a little bit more about what you don't like about the word winning and how you reframe it? Because I think we've defined it um, from a place of power um, over someone else or, you know, a a sort of this inability to say, let's both do well. Um, Or, you know, you came to a resolution and it was this notion of a win-win, which we can talk about in a minute, but it's always been defined as somebody basically overpowering somebody else or, you know, somebody gets the win, you know, I watch a lot of sports, I work in sports, somebody gets the win, the other person naturally gets the loss. And um, I don't use it in class. So I don't like it when students use it in class because, you know, you can, in negotiation, you can technically, you know, from a, from just a purely quantitative perspective, you can win a negotiation by any measure. However, you could also walk away and think, I don't even know who I was in that conversation. Like, why did I treat that person so badly? Did I really need to say that? Or, you know, oh my God, I think I lied because I was so focused on just getting this deal. And you find that maybe you've been stripped of your integrity or your values um, or you misplaced this this sort of this notion of what was really important. Um, and I think so in in that case, did you really win? or or was it just this momentary sort of victory that in the long run um, could be truly damaging? So and then and then it's like winning for who? Some people want to leave something on the table, you know, famous sports agent, Bob Wolf, used to always say, you know, and and for me, I always want to leave something on the table. And he was one of the most celebrated sports agents we've ever had. But, you know, his thing was, is it really worth sort of squeezing the last bit of juice out of every orange? And usually, no. Um, So I think we just need to relook at the word winning. It also has a lot of masculine qualities that's usually associated with it. and and typically those don't include things like, you know, you won because you were you had empathy and that you made the other person feel so good about themselves that they felt really, as a result, good about this deal and perhaps the relationship. So I just think that it just what what we hear when we hear winning is is just obtuse. It doesn't it doesn't really it doesn't make sense to me because it, you can't really define it, you know. Right. I, I so am with you. And and to step on. I, th- I love your focus on values and integrity, preserving those things. And you even give an example of a student that where it, it, someone didn't think they, quote, did well in the negotiation, mm-hmm. but they maintain their integrity. And then mm-hmm. you had others that came away on paper seeming to get the most money, but they they gave a little white lie or something that, right. how are you going to feel about yourself when you get right. through this? And I just think it's so powerful how you how you talk about that and 
and the emphasis on the the long term and the relationship and trusting mm-hmm. the process. And that's a great line too from Bob Wolf. Do we need to squeeze every drop out right, of every orange? Right. You also gave the example of your student Esther, or I don't know if I, maybe Esther's, you'll pronounce it for me, yeah, but she true. said, great, we have a good deal. Now can we make it better? But right. that's how she closes a negotiation. I mean, that's so epic. So I don't want to credit Bob Wolf with that line. I think I was just sort of thinking about like when you read his work, you're like, that's really what he's saying is, do you really need to crush the your counterpart to consider this a good deal? And he was often like, no, that's actually, you know, if you're going to have, a, you're going to talk to this general manager again, why would you want to make them feel badly? Like that's, you're making it just harder for yourself the next time around and then the next time after that. So, um, and I'll, I'll send you um, the article that actually, it's, no matter how much time goes by, I still use the same article to start the class every year because um, people usually don't associate that type of thinking with sports agents, but um, it's it's an important read. But, I would love to. Um, I'll Esther, put that in the show notes. That'll be great. Yeah, Esther, Esther is, is, was just such an incredible student, but her story is one of this notion of when you treat people well, when they enjoy this process and enjoy is loosely, I use that very loosely, but when they don't walk away feeling like this was all at war or they feel poorly about the way they, um, the outcome that they got from the negotiation, but they feel good about the whole process, then that person is likely to be open to coming back to the table and saying, yeah, let's revisit this. You know, maybe, maybe in six months, there's actually something better that we can do. If they don't appreciate how you've treated them, if they don't like that experience, then why would they ever want to even have a conversation with you again? So the long-term benefit of treating people well is tremendous. Um, you know, and, and it's sort of the well that you can keep going back to. Uh, whereas if they don't want to see you again, they're like, here, take this win. I never want to talk to you again. Then that's it. That's about as much value as you can extract from that conversation. This seems like somewhat of a, a dance or fine line to me. And I'll ask a selfish, selfish question now, which is that I often try to preserve these relationships so much, try to be accommodating, collaborative, friendly, that it's more often the case that I feel disappointed, let's say at the end of a process. Yeah, I'm very happy with my integrity, my collaboration. I'm like, overjoyed. I've done all those things, but almost too well. Um, And and I love the example that you give of even NFL players, you know, this this pleaser mentality, sometimes we assign it to women, but it's not just women that you give the example of NFL players getting requests from their extended friends and family, and they might fear saying no, or being quote, difficult in the negotiation, out of perception of being greedy, ungrateful. Um, and, and in my case, with business contracts, I want to create the relationship. But this, this really is a sticking point. So I'd love to hear your take right. on it. Uh, we don't, and this is that people pleaser piece. I mean, the, the notion of, if you take care of yourself, you're somehow rejecting others needs. And I, I just don't think that's true. I think um, those things can be mutually inclusive. And it's sort of like the oxygen mask on an airplane, you know, you sort of take care of yourself before you can take care of other people. Um, and, and I think that's really important. I think we have to man, woman, um, people who are highly accommodating are oftentimes looking out before they look in. 
Um, even when they're preparing for a negotiation, like they don't start from the sense of self first. Like, what do I want? You know, what's important to me? It's more about how, what are they going to want? How am I going to make them happy? And if you could just, I mean, this sounds easy, but if you could just reverse that order and take care of yourself first and allow yourself, give yourself permission to do so and not feel like you're being greedy, but this is like about self-care, um, then I think that it's almost that easy. It's, it's really, you would be amazed how much of a change you can make uh, because, because if you start from the other place, then you're constantly thinking about what, what do I do to please the other person? There's nothing involved in that that says, you know, what does Jenny want, right? What's going to be, what's going to be, bring me inherent satisfaction and happiness. And you're leaving that to the end. Um, and that's just too important to be rushed or forgotten. We feel like we're, we're, you know, letting people down. How about letting yourself down? Like, where's that sense of not wanting to feel regret, um, for, for not having taken care of yourself. You know, I was like, if you don't take care of yourself, who will? Um, and it's absolutely true. Those are sort of the, the rules of engagement in negotiations. You take care of yourself first and then others, uh, without feeling badly about it. I love that flip in perspective and starting with the self-care piece. I will say for me, I start strong. I might start with mm-hmm. self-care in mind. And then as the negotiation progresses and the other side might draw a harder line and it goes mm-hmm. below my ideal, that's where it gets really muddy for me. So even if I start strong, and I'm wondering too, right now, especially during a crisis and potential recession, if not depression, mm-hmm. how how do people not give too much when they think, again, like small businesses coming from a place of survival where they need the money, the money, let's say it's a contract that involves money in mm-hmm. this case. Mm-hmm. Um, and comparing that to the hiring organization who doesn't need them. And you gave some examples in the book. I was so grateful right. for those where the bigger companies, they don't need you, but you, the small right. business, this might be the make or break moment. Yeah. I, I, I think that I do use examples of like sort of, you know, when we've been in bad economies, like, you know, nothing like this that we've experienced sort of collectively, but, but I think it all starts with, you know, yes, there's self care, but also, um, understanding your own value and, um, sort of sitting in that, right. And, and really believing in it, not, this can't just be, you know, a nice speech that you give yourself, you know, especially for people who sort of struggle with a sense of imposter syndrome and questioning your own value. Um, this is even more crucial because you have to start there. You have to make sure that you are committed to, the better goal, right? The more aspirational goals, the more aspirational outcomes. And, and negotiations is very, it's like a straight line. You know, you, I always say you expect more, you tend to get more. That's just studies show this, right? So, so there's that. If you so quickly let go of your goal, as soon as somebody starts talking or they are pushing back too much, then that kind of means you weren't really that committed to it in the first place, that there was some doubt in your mind about whether you were worth that in the first place. So you can't waver that quickly. Now, do you, are these times, um, you know, I said earlier, like this is when we all need to be more flexible. Sure. But there's also something about making this distinction between, by the way, these are just difficult times. So I'm willing to have some flexibility around this, but do understand that this is sort of a special moment so that 
you come back to it the next time around, they're not expecting this type of pricing from you, right? You've already told them this is for a moment in time and that's it. Um, and I think that that people then are okay with prices going up because you just told them like, this is like a, you know, I talked about my gym when we had, you know, the economy was really bad and they used to have run this massage special forever, 80 minutes for 50, for, uh, for the price of 50 minutes. And Jenny, I can tell you, it was probably like four years, I swear to God, that when the economy was bad. Then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, things got better. I haven't seen that 80 minutes for 50-minute price tag forever. And yet, we weren't disappointed because for all that time, they kept saying monthly special. I love that example so much. I yeah. definitely noted that one in the book, too. It was so good. But there's another element of all this that stood out to me. And you do a lot of traveling and teaching all around the world. And you're Iranian. Um, that's where your parents are from. Mm-hmm. And were you born in Iran or were you born I was. in the States? I was. Okay. Yeah. So my husband is Lebanese. And growing up in the US, I didn't realize how much we prioritize efficiency and speed in terms of deals, negotiations, contracts. It's almost yeah. like the quicker you get the client or they reach out to you and you sign the deal, the better. And then you highlighted this, and I didn't realize this only until spending more time in the Middle East, which is it's all about relationships. It's a long, slow courtship. And for me being a more introverted person, at first, when I didn't realize that's what was going on, I was like more frustrated that I don't Mm want to go to all these dinners. I don't want to do all this long-term courting. you know. And Mm -hmm. so I'd love if you could speak to the cultural differences around forming relationships and um, how people who love that aspect can thrive, but also those who might think, like for me in the States, I would never go to five dinners to land a client. It's just like not how I operate, but in other cultures that really might be required or they don't trust you. There's no trust there. Right. Um, I think that there's, I think there's something so beautiful about it. I too, am an introvert, like we had discussed, but um, I, as an introvert, hate like the very superficial cocktail party conversation. I welcome, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, like I just want to go in a corner. Yes, um, totally. But I mean, and you and I do have this in common, but we also have something else in common, which is sort of the like having empathy for people, right? And and this deep sense of understanding and wanting to walk in somebody else's shoes. And I think that if you start thinking about it from that perspective and think, you know, I'm actually honoring the person that I really am. Like this is my chance to not have superficial conversations, but really have meaningful conversations that, um, this is an opportunity for you to sort of evolve this one potential deal into something deeper and, and also better understand my counterpart. And so I think that there's something really again, beautiful and meaningful about the way they do this in Asia, they do this in the Middle East, it's so many parts of the world um, where, where it's the relationship first and then maybe a negotiation. Because if that doesn't, the first part doesn't work, the second part won't. And efficiency has driven us to, in this country, to minimize the importance of, of you know, these, these relationships that could, again, bring you more benefit in the long run, right? Bring you in perpetuity, you could be, you know, reaping the rewards of this, this relationship. 
and efficiency has made us want to just skip to the transaction. And, and all that is really difficult because talking about money is difficult. Always. It's always difficult. There's, it's just no gray, no shades of gray, black and white up, down. That's it. Whereas the, the, the part before that, where you are building and this relationship and coloring all the different aspects of it, as you learn more about somebody that is the part that I think introverts actually, um, and, and people who are, are highly empathetic, very emotionally intelligent. I think if you sort of see it from that perspective, I think it's actually the very best part. Like that's where the magic happens. And I think that's the very best part of any, any negotiation. Um, and you're speaking to your strengths. I, I really love your perspective and hearing it from you now, even hearing you with so much experience in business and these types of conversations saying talking about money is always hard. Like there's just something comforting about hearing you say it. And the the introvert advantages were great to hear in the book and even now as well, because I think so often the word negotiation is associated with a more outgoing, charismatic, salesy type. Mm-hmm. And it just doesn't. And that you're right. And you highlight this so well in the book that those more introspective, deep conversation, meaning, empathy, emotional intelligence, how valuable those are. And and actually, as you just said, that's that's the magic right, right. there. Yeah. That's you're, your superpower, Jenny. You yeah. should just <laughs> well, thank you. I know. I, there's so much that now I need to put in practice. You're still teaching, you're guiding mm-hmm. your class at Wharton, if not more than one class through a crazy time where none of us can predict the future. And mm-hmm. I would imagine they're they're looking to you for some amount of guidance. And even you can't really know what's going on. So I'm curious, how are you guiding your students during this time? And what's your form of leadership through this crisis? So the first day of class, I decided that I couldn't do like business as usual. We usually do negotiation exercises and all the rest of it. And the first day of class, I said, people just need to be seen right now. They need to feel like they're not the only ones going through this. And so we, I did this kind of listening exercise where I told them to sort of go off and, you know, find their partner that I had paired them up with and just have, you know, five minutes, each person would take five minutes to just talk about something that was bothering them, about something they were excited about, whatever was meaningful to them at that moment. And then the other person couldn't interrupt them. They couldn't, you know, sort of react. They couldn't judge. They just had to listen. And then, you know, they would turn around and change places. And it worked. You know, you can never know in this medium what's going to take and what's not going to take. So it's all somewhat risky, but it worked so well for them because they just wanted connection. They just wanted to feel like, you know, while the world has sort of changed, that they still had, if they were deeply sort of intertwined with people that they had seen every day for, you know, years. And it almost felt like going home in a way, right? Like it was comfortable. And in that comfort, they were vulnerable and they were open. And there was something really safe about those three hours. And by the way, I don't expect anything of them that I can't do myself. So I was super vulnerable that day. I was, it was the day that my book got launched. So it was March 24th was my first day of class. And I had put aside my book that morning. I said, I'm not even going to look at it or think about it. And I'm just going to commit to these, you know, 46 students of mine. 
And it was, it was, you know, just what I needed because my heart felt so full. My soul felt so grateful for these three hours of being all in this place of sadness and grief to some extent, but just excitement to reconnect and also completely afraid because we had no idea what was going to happen the next day or the day after that and what have you. So I think that, that as, as teachers, as people, maybe even leaders and companies, there's so much value in admitting that you don't know either, that there's this sense of honesty and transparency that's required of us uh, because I think people appreciate that. And then also committing to this notion of, and we're going to get through this. I don't know how, I don't know why, but let's just start with sort of reconnecting first and, and then we go, then we go, we're going to go there together. And it was amazing. I have to say, I cried for like three hours after that class. Mm-hmm. Cause I was like, this was exactly what I needed. And I think it was exactly what they needed. And it was amazing. What a gift, what a gift to create that space and hold that space for them. And it just speaks to all the skills that you've cultivated and that you talk about, which is being in the moment, really, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. tuning in. And you said, you know, one thing you're missing with the in-person is just tuning in to their faces and what they yeah. need right now. Yeah. So the fact that you're able to do that, and I, I'm with you 100%. I think even the trainings I have done virtually, I'm giving a lot more time for check-ins. and. Right the community that I lead, it's like, we don't have the answers, but we're in this together. And there's something comforting about even just that. Right, right. No, it's it's true. And and, and galvanizing that kind of energy for to do something together, it's so much easier than feeling like you're alone and, you know, helpless. And it's it's really pretty amazing what that collective can do. Yes, I was just thinking that it's almost like this cannot be solved. Right. As a one-off, it it requires collective intelligence. Yeah, it does. It really does. Maury, thank you so much for being here, for sharing your work. I'm so excited for this book. I think it will have a long life, even beyond this launch that has been shifted. I know that it will. Can you let listeners know where they can find you if they want to learn more and keep in touch? Yep. So uh, my website, so com, and the book itself is on like every you know, outlets, so Amazon and every, everything else basically at this point. So um, easy to find them all over social media. Um, but before I go, I, I just want to say to you that, you know, you just said that I have a lot, you know, this has a long shelf life. You too, as, as sort of the, the person who's been talking about this notion of shifting and pivoting and, you know, um, that being so much a part of our everyday, I think, you should sit in your power and mm-hmm. and understand that you started these conversations be- well before we were even ready for them. So, um, so you know, I- I'm I'm excited for people to reconnect with that for you as well. So I wish you nothing but the best. Thank you so much. That makes me want to cry. <laughs> Thank you. It's an emotional time. I really appreciate you saying that and hearing it from you. Really means a lot. Thank, Thank you, you so much. And everybody, the book is called Bring Yourself. How to Harness the Power of Connection to Negotiate Fearlessly. Maury, Thank you're you so amazing. Much. Thank you so much. And Thank thanks, you. everybody. Take good care. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Pivot Podcast. 
Make sure you don't miss an episode or my insider tips and templates by signing up for Pivot List, a curated twice-monthly newsletter where I share the inside scoop on what I'm reading, watching, listening to, and the latest tools I'm geeking out on. Sign up at pivotmethod.com slash pivotlist. Get show notes from this episode at pivotmethod.com slash podcast. And connect with me on Twitter at Jenny underscore Blake. Remember, build first, then your courage will follow. Hasn't it always? <laughs>